Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Two trillion dollars for infrastructure. Well, in theory, that's what Donald Trump, Chuck Schumer, and Nancy Pelosi agreed to yesterday. We'll see whether that ever sees the light of day. We'll see where the money is coming from. Will Donald Trump be willing to cut into some of those tax cuts to pay for that infrastructure? Don't hold your breath. Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say? Here we go. It's Wednesday, first day of May. It's a big May Day celebration. Uh, go out there and dance around the Maypole today. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? I don't know. I Sure. Just another day for me. <laughs> May Day, May Day, May Day. And here we are with the Bill Press Show coming to you live, as always, from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. With the news of the day, everything you uh, need to know to get yourself through the rest of the day, everything you need to know, everything you want to know, probably a lot of stuff that you'd rather not know. But uh, we bring it to you in anyway because we want you to be informed and uh, with the program. And, you know, the program means that you participate as well. So as we talk to you about the latest with Robert Mueller, not happy with Attorney General Bill Barr, Accusing, in effect, accusing Bill Barr of misrepresenting what was in his final report when Bill Barr gave that summary to the uh, to the uh, United States Congress. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the big infrastructure meeting tomorrow and the emoluments clause where Donald Trump in trouble over the Trump International Hotel. Those lawsuits go forward. Donald Trump in even more legal trouble today. All of that coming up here on the Bill Press Show. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. On Twitter, at BP Show. And we dive in with both feet, but first. This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Bill, I know it's been a while since you've eaten at a Burger King. Um, probably 40 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I yeah. don't know. Yeah, uh, I'd be surprised if you ever ate at a Burger King. I, 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 we don't eat a Burger King. I can't remember ever eating a Burger King. Yeah. 
I think I might. I mean, have five guys is my five guys is my. Uh, You're gonna get a burger. It's my fast food, that's right? Pretty, that's a pretty solid choice. Well, Burger King. We mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Burger King began testing the Impossible Burger. It is a totally plant-based burger patty. There's no meat in it whatsoever. They tested it out, and they said that it was such a huge success that it's going to roll out nationwide earlier than they had planned to roll it out. In fact, they are impossible. Impossible, right? They're taking it nationwide. Impossible. It is a version of their signature burger, the Whopper, uh, that will have no meat in it whatsoever. Now, by the way, they say that this is not just some uh, conciliatory offering to vegetarians. They say that they are primarily targeting meat eaters who want a little more balance in their diet. Well, do they, so is Impossible the name? Impossible Burgers. That's the name of the burger, yeah. There's a, there, there have been a couple of different burgers uh, that have come to market that are yeah. plant-based, right? Beyond Meat is one of them, and Impossible Burger is, the is I think, now the most popular version. But it can't be a burger if there's no meat, no? Aren't, that is a, a like a semantics issue, I guess. I mean, I I would agree with you. I think a burger is a, a meat patty, but I don't know. So here's you my got, deal: you got salmon I don't, burgers. I don't do fast burgers. food. If I do, it's it's maybe once a month. Five Guys, right? Sure. And I don't eat that much red meat. But if I go in for a burger, oh damn it! I want some ground cow. Yeah, exactly. Uh, plant food. Another quick story: uh, this new poll done by UCLA. Uh, people in Los Angeles like living in Los Angeles. They say they have good health care, public safety, and neighborhoods. I love L.A. Well, here's love the problem. LA. Here's the problem. A lot of people don't love L.A. as much as they could because it's so expensive to live there. A lot of Angelinos say they wish that the cost of living was less, and because of that, their quality of life takes a little bit of a hit. By the way, same thing with San Francisco. Sure. This is the Bill Press Show. And now Robert Mueller speaks up and says, Hey, Bill Barr, you misrepresented me. You misquoted me. You made my report look a lot nicer to Donald Trump than it really is. Hey, what do you say, everybody? Here we go. It is the Bill Press Show. On a big Wednesday, Wednesday, first day of May 2019, hello, 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 and welcome to the program. As always, lots to talk about today, Today, lots in the news, both uh, on Capitol Hill, just down the street from our studio, uh, and down at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue at the White House and around the rest of the country. Big news we will bring to you and look forward to getting your comments as we join you online. As always, on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. We're on the radio with you in Indiana, statewide Indiana Talks, and all over Chicago and the greater Chicago area on the one and only WCPT, the big progressive voice of Chicago for many, many years now. Proud to start off your day in Chicago with all of you, and also proud and happy to join you on the, those of you watching on television, 
on the nation's only full-time 24-7 progressive cable channel, and that is Free Speech TV, part of the DirecTV network, of course. A bombshell, an absolute bombshell hitting the Capitol last night. The Washington Post reported, first to report, that Robert Mueller himself, we heard before that a few people who worked for Robert for um, Robert Mueller, the special counsel, members of his team, uh, put out the word that they thought that Bill Barr did not accurately represent what the report was all about in his four-page summary that he sent to the con- Congress, where he said, remember, basically there was no collusion. He also said um, Robert Mueller couldn't decide whether or not to charge the president with obstruction of justice. But he, Bill Barr, had agreed, had decided not to charge him with obstruction of justice. And several members of Mueller's team reportedly put out the word to a couple of reporters, that's not really what the report says. Well, now we've got Mueller himself, according to reported first again by the Washington Post, back on March 27, he wrote a letter to Bill Barr accusing Bill Barr, of misrepresenting what is in that report. That's a stunning development. One sentence that the, we haven't seen the letter yet, by the way. Why not? How soon are we going to see the letter? Where is the damn letter? That's the first question I would ask. Bill Barr, the the timing could not be better for us or worse for Bill Barr, the report on this Mueller letter, because... Bill Barr is scheduled to testify today in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, tomorrow in front of the House Judiciary Committee, which, you know, is a little flap over that, whether he's going to allow the staff attorneys to ask him questions or not. But today, Senate Judiciary Committee, and this, according to the Washington Post, in Bob Mueller's letter, there is at least this one sentence they quote, this threatens, meaning Barr's summary, the way he did it. Robert Mueller says, quote, this threatens to undermine the special purpose for which the department appointed the special counsel. That's strong language. You have undermined my mission. You have undermined my purpose. That's what Mueller is saying to um, Bill Barr, because he is saying you made it sound much, much, much more positive to Donald, about Donald Trump than it really is. And remember, we remember what Bill Barr did on at least two occasions. First, in his four-page summary, uh, he made it sound like Donald Trump had done nothing wrong. And then, secondly, the morning he released the report, two hours before he released the report, he held that now famous news conference in very Trumpian terms where he basically said, quoting Donald Trump, no collusion, no obstruction, complete exoneration, which is total BS. And it, now Robert Mueller himself, the special counsel, says that. It's really fascinating to kind of take a step back because this last month or so of Bill Barr's uh, summary of Robert Mueller's report, which he said he felt like he had to do so that he wasn't taking things out of context or uh, anything like that. Uh, and then went on to have this press conference, uh, which completely blew away that argument, right? 
it, it's really fascinating to just step back and look at how disgusting this process was, right? And I think a lot of people fell for it early on because, you know, it, this is the Attorney General of the United States, and now we see exactly what his job is. Yeah. Uh, now we know. And Robert Mueller has made it clear. And Robert Mueller should be screaming, uh, you know, in, in a letter to Bill Barr. He should be on TV. He should be talking about, this is not what I said. Well, at the very least, and this is one we'll find out, it's more imperative than ever that Robert Mueller himself yeah. testify in front of the House Judiciary Committee and the Senate Judiciary Committee and say, this is what I found. There were tons, tons of attempts on the part of the Trump campaign to get dirt on Hillary from the Russians. They knew who was doing it. They felt they could benefit from that dirt, and they held meetings with the Russians to get that dirt. Whether that was a criminal conspiracy or not, doesn't matter. There was a lot of collusion. And then Mueller's got to say, and obstruction of justice? Yeah, I found a dozen times when the president tried to obstruct justice. Now, under my jurisdiction at the DOJ, but because of the DOJ rules, I can't indict him for that. But Congress could, and that's what he says in his report. So it, it, it's more clear than ever, and we've said this before, um, you know, I don't mean to say I told you so, but I did tell you so that Bob, Bill Barr was appointed for one purpose only, to kill, undermine, discredit the Mueller report. And that famous 19-page memo that he wrote a year ago saying the FBI investigation, the special counsel's investigation was um, unmerited, uncalled for, and you could never indict a president for any crime whatsoever. That was Bill Barr's job application to become attorney general. And Donald Trump appointed him attorney general for one reason only. Again, to undermine Robert Mueller and to discredit his report. And as far as Donald Trump is concerned for what Bill Barr has done, mission accomplished. And he almost got away with it. But now, man, it is all falling apart. One veteran um, uh, Department of Justice unnamed in the Washington Post calls this move by Robert Mueller stunning, stunning that a former special counsel would call out the attorney general himself for lying to the American people. And that's what he's done. You have to remember when I, you- t It is stunning. It really is. And you have to remember when, you t when we talk about James Comey and uh, Robert Mueller, these are- well, lifers and but, if you read but republicans and republicans yes. yes both of them are republicans uh yeah. but if you read james comey's book and i think a lot of this is is how it informs how robert Mueller does business they are by the book the law above all else right uh and i don't want to glorify you know the fbi or anything like that but they have a very uh, uh strict moral code that they feel is imperative on how to live your life right right that, that's clear that's clear with with both of them and this is such an affront to everything that that stands for what they've done with bill barr right now bill barr in front of the senate judiciary committee today as to say the timing could not be worse for him because you know this is what democrats and republicans are going to be after him saying hey who's telling the truth here well, let's go back to the last time he testified, 
not that long ago, April 9, and uh, our good friend, Senator Chris Van Hollen from Maryland, asked Barr directly whether you and Mueller are on the same page. Did Bob Mueller support your conclusion? I don't know whether Bob Mueller supported my conclusion. Lie, lie, lie. Yes, he did know, because on March 27, April 9, on March 27, Robert Mueller wrote the letter that said, you misrepresented me. So for Bill Barr to say, I don't know whether he agreed with me or not, again, it's a fat lie. He had the letter from Robert Mueller at that time. Um, Chris, and then Bill Barr, also Attorney General Barr, made this point that he swears, now he's under oath, he swears that he did the best he could to reflect what Robert Mueller um, concluded using Mueller's own words. I felt that I should state the bottom line conclusions, uh, and I tried to use uh, Special Counsel Mueller's own language in doing that. Again, lie, lie, lie. No, he didn't. Now we've got the special counsel saying, he didn't use my own language. He distorted my own language. He took, in fact, Mueller says that he took stuff out of context to make it look better than it actually is. So this got this total, total um, difference of opinion here uh, between the attorney general and special counsel Robert Mueller uh, and you got to say, in terms of credibility, Bill Barr has none left. I mean, look, it's like you said earlier. I, 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 we kind of hate to say we told you so, but it is nice that he confirmed what we've been saying. This is BS. What Bill Barr put out there was not true. You mm-hmm. listen to what he said. You look at the statements that he put out, and then you look at the actual report, and it's it's right there in our faces. Yeah. Yeah. Like, who do you believe? Me, Bill Barr, or your lying eyes? You know? So the the best thing that, uh, that the Democrats in Congress can do is uh, get Robert Mueller up there to testify and just let, let, him, let, him, let him tell us exactly what happened and what he did find in that report. And uh, maybe, maybe, maybe even some of uh, Trump supporters will say uh, in, in the Congress will say, well, I guess this is not really the green light that Donald Trump claims that it is. Meanwhile, down at the White House yesterday, the much long-awaited meeting between um, Senate leader, Chuck, Democratic leader Chuck Schumer, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, um, chair, Democratic chairs, they're all Democrats, of the relevant committees in the House and in the Senate, to talk to Donald Trump and his team about infrastructure. Yes, it is Infrastructure Week yet again here in Washington, D.C. Never ends. Uh, and they walked out with the signs of an agreement, believe it or not. Remember, we talked yesterday morning that this meeting could have gone entirely off the rails. Donald Trump could have used it to talk about asylum or immigration or caravans and let the TV cameras roll and insulted everybody. But... Um, Uh, They kept it behind closed doors, and when they walked out, they all had big smiles. And again, signs of, outward signs of an agreement, Chuck Schumer saying, we went in talking to talk about a trillion dollars. We came out a lot higher than that. We agreed on a number, which was very, very good, $2 trillion for infrastructure. 
$2 trillion. Oh, my God. Well, where's that money going to come from? Chuck Schumer. We said we would meet in three weeks, and he would present to us some of his ideas on funding. So this was a very, very good start, and we'll see. We hope it will go to a constructive conclusion. There's the rub, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, look, infrastructure, and we'll get this in a second, is so important. I mean, our infrastructure is crumbling coast to coast. But saying we're going to spend $2 trillion and then saying where the money's going to come from, that is the rub. And um, the way this was left is the Democrats are saying, we want Donald Trump to cut back on some of those tax cuts restore some of those taxes that were cut the last time, particularly for big businesses, and use that to pay for the infrastructure. Donald Trump is silent so far on where the money's going to come from, but I'll bet you what he's going to say. Well, let's take it from national parks, and let's take it from schools, and let's take it from uh, all this other stuff that we don't need, like Medicare or Social Security or Medicaid. Uh, They're going to come up with some drastic cuts they say are necessary to call for the infrastructure. So my, my point is we're far from a deal. Yesterday, it's nice to hear this bipartisan outcome of the meeting, right? Um, but we'll see. We'll see when the, uh, when the rubber hits the road here. But Chuck Schumer did say yesterday, uh, how and both Nancy Pelosi, but first Chuck Schumer, how important it is to get to work fixing our infrastructure. We agreed that infrastructure is crucial to the future of America. We agreed it creates jobs. We agreed it keeps us competitive. And Speaker Pelosi joining in of all the vast benefits that um, rebuilding our infrastructure will bring. It's about jobs, jobs, jobs. It's about promoting commerce. It's about clean air, clean water. Uh, it's a so therefore a public health issue it's a quality of life issue all right so we'll see how we'll uh, we'll follow that they meet again in three weeks uh it's something we've been talking about for a long long time uh something that both hillary clinton and donald trump and bernie sanders talked about in 2016 um maybe maybe we'll go down the road depends on uh, donald trump i think and republicans being willing to come up with some pay for uh to make it to make it happen (laughs) Uh, a couple of other uh, issues were a little bit of trouble for Donald Trump on two different fronts. First of all, um, we've talked in the past about this crazy word called emoluments, which none of us knew about until Donald Trump got elected uh, or whatever, um, somehow ended up in the White House. And that is that the Constitution clearly says the president cannot benefit from gifts from foreign countries and foreign individuals or nations. And yet the president has a hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue right here in Washington, D.C., where since from, if you believe the Constitution, starting on day one of his presidency, he is in violation of the Constitution because of all the foreign guests that stay at his hotel, all the foreign nations that hold events at his hotel, and he has refused to divest himself from that property or any of his properties. There are two lawsuits on the Emoluments Clause that are going forward against that hotel. We've talked about this before. One of them is the is brought by the Attorney General for the District of Columbia, Attorneys General for the District of Columbia and the State of Maryland, which assert that because the president's name is attached to that hotel, 
they are hurting other businesses, restaurants, hotels in this Washington, D.C. area and in violation of the Emoluments Clause. Second lawsuit brought by members of Congress, Democratic members of Congress, who say the president is in violation of the Constitution. Point. Yesterday in a D.C. courtroom, the a judge said that that lawsuit brought by the congressional Democrats can go forward. Attorneys for Donald Trump were in the court saying this is a frivolous lawsuit. It should be thrown out. The judge said, no, it's not. They've got a serious point. We can go forward with discovery. It was a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, that a second court said the other emoluments uh, lawsuit can go forward. So you've got two lawsuits on emoluments going forward for Donald Trump, more legal trouble. And he's also in a little bit of legal trouble over his the man that he says he wants to appoint to the Federal Reserve. This is amazing. Stephen Moore. And he's sticking by Stephen Moore, just like he's stuck by Roger Ailes and Roy Moore. Uh, he has a tendency to stick by losers, right, Donald Trump? Every day you turn around and, and Stephen Moore's he doesn't have a sexual harassment or sexual assault uh, accusations, but... Which is rare that Donald which Trump is, rare. is standing rare. by someone who yeah. doesn't have one of those. But some of the, some of the stuff that he has, he has said, first of all, he, so he's Donald Trump says he wants to appoint him to the Federal Reserve. Why? Because he saw him on television. He thought he made sense. This is another case. Donald Trump sees somebody on television, wants to make them part of his administration. The nation's leading economists say, first of all, that Stephen Moore doesn't know crap about economics. He's an economist, but he's been wrong about the impact the, the Trump tax cuts were going to have. He was wrong about the Great Recession, what caused it, whether we were going to go into one. By the way, Larry Kudlow was too. So he, on just on pure economics ground, he's very, very shaky. But on other stuff, this guy has a horrible record. He owed, it was discovered he owed $75,000 to the IRS for unpaid taxes. Back in 2012, he was held in contempt of court for failing to pay $300,000 in alimony and child support for his ex-wife. On top of that, Stephen Moore has written columns where he has said that uh, black women should never be allowed to make more than black men at the same job because that, that just makes men feel insecure. Uh, he has written a column, column after column, denigrating women. Uh, another column saying that women should not be allowed to af- serve as officials or even to serve beer at in, at men's basketball games. <laughs> this is, cra- this not is even, crazy. Yeah, right. You think that's bad? Wait, it gets worse. Stephen Moore also says we should relax our labor laws so that 11-year-olds and 12-year-olds can go to work. Oh, yeah, Quit school man. and go out and get a job. I mean, think about seriously, seriously, 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds, Stephen Moore. Donald Trump says he wants to appoint him to the Federal Reserve Board. Well, enough Republicans came out and said they weren't going to vote for Herman Cain, that Herman Cain pulled his name down and told the president, please don't nominate me. As of yet, the White House has not officially nominated Stephen Moore, but Larry Kudlow says we're still behind him. Donald Trump says we're still behind him. Sarah Huckabee Sanders says we're still behind him. But yesterday, 
at least almost a half a dozen, maybe even more. But Joni Ernst, Richard, Republican senators, Joni Ernst, Richard Shelby, John Thune, John Cornyn, Lindsey Graham even, those five said outright, not we'll vote against him, but this guy's a problem. We're not really sure we could support him. I think Susan Collins was on that list too. Uh, looks like Stephen Moore uh, is in trouble. Another bad, more bad news for Donald Trump. On the 2020 front, interesting, and we'll be talking about 2020, uh, about 2020, particularly with Alex Seitzwald from NBC News a little bit later in the program. Three polls yesterday showing that since his launch, Joe Biden has just jumped up there, leading the pack of Democratic candidates even more than he was uh, before his announcement. I'll give you three of them. On CNN, CNN has Joe Biden at 39, Bernie Sanders second place at 15, a 24-point advantage for Joe Biden, which I find a little hard to believe, but that's the poll. Politico, Morning Consult, their poll, Joe Biden 36, Bernie Sanders 22. Um, again, big, big lead there, 14-point lead uh, in uh, the, the Politico poll. And the Quinnipiac poll shows Joe Biden at 38 and Bernie Sanders at 11, a 27-point lead, uh, a lead that's not going to last that long, but still pretty impressive uh, debut there for Joe Biden uh, on, on that front. Uh, also on the 2020 front, Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg, yesterday released 10 years of his tax returns. Uh, I haven't had a chance to look at them yet, but um, it's not going to show that he made a lot of right. money <laughs> right. as mayor of South Bend, Indiana. But on the other hand, South Bend, Indiana, unlike Peter, you mentioned yesterday or a little earlier about how expensive Los Angeles sure, is yeah. or San Francisco. So the mortgage oh, on Pete Buttigieg's boy. home in yeah. South Bend, Indiana. Yeah. Extra- I'm sure it's an extravagant, lovely home. It, they say it's a beautiful, beautiful home. Oh, One of the yeah. nicest in South Bend. Uh-huh. Mortgage, $450 a month. <sighs> Man. <laughs> Boy, that stings. That really stings. Yeah. Mm. Forget about moving to Washington, D.C., San Francisco, L.A., New York, right? South Bend is where it's at, man. South Bend is where it's at. <laughs> now $450 you know, a month. Now you know why a lot of people live... Um, in that great big, right, middle, middle United States. No, I, th- I mean, look, I've been saying that for years, right? I think a lot of people sort of sneer at the uh, the middle of the country, and they have a lot of problems. But, like, you can yeah. buy a nice house. Right, absolutely. Uh, and one final note here before we take a little break. Lee Zhou joins us next, by the way, um, congressional reporter for Vox. Uh, just want to say a personal word about... Um, a great person and a great friend whom we lost yesterday at the age of 67, former California Congresswoman Ellen Tauscher. Uh, she was a real giant in her field. She served uh, Contra Costa County. I knew her well. I was I helped her in the first time first time that she ran. She's a she's a uh, businesswoman, owned a bank, ran a bank, owned a bank and ran a bank in the East Bay. Um, she was a, at one point the youngest member of the New York Stock Exchange. I think in her late 20s. Um, very successful businesswoman, 
and then went on to run for Congress, represented uh, Contra Costa County, I think, three or four terms. Uh, during the Clinton administration, she went to the State Department, where she was the lead arms control negotiator, a very, very um, important figure in the whole um, effort to rest- to cut down the number of nuclear weapons in this country and to uh, prevent the proliferation of nuclear materials. Uh, Ellen Tauscher died yesterday at the age of 67. Uh, another great loss, along with Richard Luger, who was also an important leader in the field of uh, getting rid of nuclear weapons, or at least containing them. So it's this way. As we say, lots going on. Lee Zhou joins us next. Congressional reporter for Vox, Alex Seitzwald from NBC News. Here is a friend of Bill later on. And then Zoe Tillman from BuzzFeed News, BuzzFeed, their legal reporter. It's a big Wednesday, May 1. Good to have you with us. A quick break, and we'll be right back. This is the Bill Press Show. And here we go on a Wednesday, May 1. Uh, Great to see everybody. Thank you for joining us, the Bill Press Show. It's good to have you with us as we come to you live from Washington, D.C. And our studio in Capitol Hill, just down the street from the United States Capitol Building, where they are back, back, um, loosely phrased, back at work this week (laughs) after a two-week break. We're brought to you today by the American Federation of Government Employees. They never get a two-week break like that. Uh, The good men and women who run our federal agencies nationwide under the leadership of President J. David Cox. And we salute them, thank them for the support of the program. And now the Congress is back. Lee Joe is back on the job, too, as congressional reporter for Vox. You never got the two weeks off. (laughs) No, no two weeks off for us. (laughs) Nice to see you, Lee. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. We've uh, been here for a little bit before. And uh, some of our listeners and viewers have been weighing in. Yeah, we have lots of comments where we are tweeting at BP Show on Twitter, at BP Show. We'd love to hear from you on any topic at any time. Uh, first of all, let me just point out that we have a poll mm, up. Do mm. you think that William Barr should resign? Very easy. Yes or no. Uh, Bill, you're going to be shocked to hear no. that uh, uh, there is an overwhelming vote for yes. 95% of you, as of now, say yes. <laughs> 5% of you say no. Uh, we talked about the Impossible Burger. Burger King is rolling out the Impossible Whopper. Uh, Phil weighs in. He says, I actually tried an Impossible Burger. It was actually really good and really close to a real burger. And I love meat. That is from Phil, our buddy Phil here in Washington, D.C. But, like, was it red and juicy and, you know? It's a good question. I, I haven't had the Impossible Burger. I've had several uh, vegan uh, meat alternatives uh, in burger form, but I haven't had uh, the Impossible Burger. I might go try and find one. I mean, I've heard that sometimes they put, like, a little beet in there so they get the red Yeah, they actually juice. bleed. It looks like, like juicy yeah. of, like, a burger. I like beets, but... Sure. I feel I like I have to go burger. try the Impossible Burger. I feel like I have to go try it now. Uh, you know what the chances are? I'll try it. Mm. Impossible. Impossible. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, uh, on that question, <laughs> on that question about whether or not Bill Barr should resign, uh, yes, uh, Lee says uh, I would imper- I would prefer impeachment for Donald Trump first. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Uh, Michael says if Trump gets infrastructure, he will tell his base and others that he got it and campaign on it, and then he's going to get elected again. I don't think this was a good move for the Democrats. Interesting take on it there. Yeah. But uh, I, I do have to say I don't disagree, but at the same time, repairing our infrastructure would be good for the country. Sure. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think there would be enough credit to go around. Uh, find us on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. What I find strange about the infrastructure thing, Lee, is, mm-hmm. is that this is who Donald, I mean, he claims to be, right, the builder. Sure, yeah. So if I were him, if I were advising him, I would have said in the beginning, instead of going after to repeal Obamacare, mm-hmm. he should have said, this is who I am. I'm a builder. I know how to get things done. I'm going to rebuild our infrastructure. You know, he promised a trillion dollars right. in the campaign. Yeah. He could have gone out there. He could have gotten bipartisan support mm-hmm. in his first year for a big, massive infrastructure, a trillion, two trillion dollars, whatever. And then he could say, you know, look, that new highway, I built that. That new airport, I built that. Or the expansion of the airport or whatever. Yeah. You know, a biggest builder this country has ever seen. Yeah. And instead, he's often this other stuff, you know, talking about sealing the border caravans yeah. or or um pardon me other repealing Obamacare. Yeah. Pardon me, which hasn't worked. Right, so. right. Yeah. But but first of all, you think that the infrastructure meeting yesterday at the White House was the biggest event at the White House yesterday? No, it was not. The biggest event at the White House was after the infrastructure meeting when uh, Joey Logano from NASCAR <laughs> right. came to the White House. Donald Trump praising NASCAR to the skies. Here he is. NASCAR is not only a thrilling display of skill and power, but a celebration of the American spirit. So true. No matter who wins the race, you never forget what matters most. God, family, and country. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is. NASCAR. What? God, family, and country. Yeah. Apparently... That Donald Trump says he watches NASCAR all the time. He took Joey Logano on a private tour of the White House, took him upstairs, showed him the Lincoln bedroom, you know, the Truman balcony. He got the whole, the whole deal, right? You mean he didn't shovel fast food uh, <laughs> yeah. into his face? Like <laughs> That's he did the that. real question. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I'm actually looking right now. Uh, I don't think that there are any African-Americans in, that drive NASCAR, uh, drive cars for NASCAR. I don't think so. I don't think so. I could be wrong. But now we understand why Donald Trump loves it so much. Oh, yeah, right. Well, um, yeah, I don't know of any. I Listen, also. I couldn't name a regular NASCAR driver, you. to I be fair. I say the same thing. If Joey Logano walked in here right now. Never I'd, heard of the guy. I'd say, no, I think you wanted the uh, optometrist on the second floor or <laughs> <Right>. whatever. <laughs> wrong office. Yeah. Uh, well, um, so, Lee, what can we expect now that Congress is back? What are the priorities? What's going to you know, what are they diving into? Are they going to get anything done? Yeah, it's a good ongoing question. Yeah. It feels like you've got very, very different priorities from the Democrats and the Republicans. <laughs> and we already saw some of that play out over recess for Democrats investigations and it's putting the pressure on the White House. Right. And for Republicans, it's kind of their ongoing focus on both nominations, but also deflecting a lot of that attention that's being directed at Trump. All right, so let's start with the investigation. So one hearing today, uh, Attorney General Bill Barr, mm-hmm. scheduled to testify in front of Senate Judiciary Committee, right. which he probably will. Yes, that seems like it's still on. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the timing now is extremely important because yesterday the Washington Post dropping this bombshell right. that Robert Mueller himself wrote a letter back on March 27 to Bill Barr saying, I don't agree with the spin that you put on my report. Yeah. You misrepresented my report, basically. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. That's 
a, just a huge story. And it seems to lay out a lot of the concerns that various journalists raised, too, after Barr gave that press conference the day of the report's release, where he was like, you know, the president gave us such great access and that he um, that Mueller did not use the DOJ guidance as kind of the main reason he decided not to charge the president. And right. both right. of those things, you know, are very differently presented in the report itself. Right. And I mean, they're pointing out that if you if you look at the report or if you look at the attorney general's four page summary and the report, mm-hmm. if you look at the attorney general's transcript of his news conference and the report, right. they're not the same at all. There's yeah. a vast difference between what Bill Barr represented yeah. and what actually came out. Mm-hmm. And now we know that Mueller himself says, you know, you you did not get it straight. I mean, you. You, you misled the American people about what I said. Yeah. So yeah. the the next question is, when's Robert, Robert Mueller going to testify? Yeah, <laughs> right. And we I don't, think, do we have any idea? We don't know. The House <laughs> has said that they really want him to testify as soon as possible. And well, wouldn't the Senate Judiciary Committee as well? They they should, I think. But um, Lindsey Graham has said he's not interested. And and the, oh, that's right. The he's of, the chair now, not Grassley. Right, yeah. right. And it feels like from them, the the kind of party line is it's over. There were no criminal charges. We're done. In fact, Lindsey Graham said. He doesn't care what happened between Donald Trump and Don McGahn, for right. example. Right. He said as much during a, the, like a press appearance this past weekend. All right. So in theory, Barr is also um, scheduled to testify in front of the House Judiciary tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Now, I know there's wrangling going on about the procedure or, or how that questioning takes place. What's yeah. the issue? The issue is that Democrats want their in-house counsel to do some of the questioning. So they do 30 minutes of continuous questioning of Barr, and that would theoretically maybe provide a more thorough kind of cross-examination of him versus having, you know, you go from representative to representative for five yeah, minutes each. Yeah. Um, and I think what Barr is saying is there's no precedent for doing that, and it's almost disrespectful because he's the attorney general and he should be questioned by members of Congress, not counsel. Well, in fact, there is precedent for that. I wasn't around here in those mm-hmm. days, but I, I do know during the Watergate hearings, um, they had this counsel for the, wasn't Sam Dash? Yes, right. Was exactly. the Democrat, and then I forget who the Republican, but each side had their staff attorney mm-hmm. question the witnesses. Right. And I'm yeah. sure other, I'm sure members could get in a question and maybe after that. Sure, yeah. But and, yeah. this is not, maybe they haven't done it for a few years, but I mean, it's, it's been done before. Yeah, right, right. I don't think there's an ex- exact comparison from what I saw, but but of course, people also, um, I think, pointed to the Kavanaugh hearings and the fact that outside counsel was used to question Christine Blase Ford at the time. So, that's right. So, yeah. so, so there yeah, have been instances right. that are similar, I think, <laughs> if, if they're not an exact kind of matchup. Right. Um, now, um, on another front, and we talked a little bit about this uh, in the last half hour, um, when is Steve Moore going to be up for confirmation hearing? Yeah, that is very much up in the air. Um, did, did you talk to any Republican senators about about him? Yes. And what and are they saying? They're, they have a lot of questions about him, and I think specifically some columns that he published um, in the early 2000s in National Review. Um, basically, these columns question women's involvement in sports, 
One of them says there should be no women announcers, no women referees in college basketball. Another one questions why women athletes should be paid the same if they're doing inferior work. So these are very sexist columns. And I think especially Republican women have raised this concern. And increasingly, you're seeing it spread to other members of the conference as right. well. Right. I mean, uh, uh, yes, Joni Ernst, I think, um, Lisa Murkowski and some others have yeah. said, mm, boy, you know, I'm a woman. I don't like this kind of language. Right. He says they were all jokes. Yeah. But, you know, you might get away from that, away with that if he said it just in an interview mm-hmm. or, you know, being flip on television. Right. But these were columns, right? Yeah. I mean, I write a column. I write two a week. I mm-hmm. mean, you columns, you put a lot of thought into a column, right? Right. Yeah. And supposedly. And- Okay, maybe you could even get away with it in one column, but he had multiple columns. Yeah, yeah. Um, where he degrades women and denigrates women. Right. Uh, and the, to me, the the most outrageous thing he said was that we should relax our labor laws to allow eleven year olds and twelve year olds to go to work, get a job. Yeah. Right. Yeah, like I mean, he has many other yeah, kind of yeah. points so many of view issues that right. he's expressed. Yeah, that are that are kind of that are troubling and also. <laughs> Um, kind of very very unconventional yeah. as well. Yeah. So the there were enough Republican voices that said they would have a problem with Clarence Tom. I'm um, I'm sorry with um, Pizza uh, Herman Cain. Yeah. Yeah. That he asked the president not to put his name up. Now the president has not officially nominated Stephen Moore yet. Right. Yeah. And as of last night, um, I think Stephen Moore has said very confidently that he continues to pursue this nomination. Of course, that's also what Herman Cain said up till the very last minute as well. So um, we'll see. I think later this week, you know, there'll probably be an update of some kind. On the political front, um, a disappointing news yesterday for Chuck Schumer, mm-hmm. who has been wooing Stacey Abrams from Georgia to run for Senate. Right. Uh, is it Johnny Isaacson? Who's she? Uh, David Perdue. David Perdue, yeah. right, is up. Um, and Stacey Abrams announced that she is not going to run for the Yeah, summer. yeah, she decided against it. And I think one of the reasons that I saw cited was that she really wanted to run for governor because that's an executive position. And being in the Senate would be mean being part of a legislative, more deliberative body. And that's not exactly, I think, what she was maybe looking for as a next step. Um, and then, so then you've got Beto O'Rourke, too. Mm-hmm. People were hoping that he might not run for president, but get set up to run against John Cornyn. Right, right. In a couple of years, and he's yeah. not going to do that either. So, yeah, I think those are two superstars within the Democratic uh, Party that maybe should have considered <laughs> running for Senate. I, I think. Look, the, I agree. The election in 2020 is going to be a very big deal. Obviously, the White House is at stake. That doesn't mean a whole <laughs> hell of a lot if Mitch McConnell is still in charge of the Senate. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are saying, you know, potentially they go the way of Marco Rubio and decide to run for 2020, but yeah. at the right time, drop out of the presidential race and kind of switch gears to the Senate race. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I think these are the case of two people, too, who let their first run and the attention that they got at the mm-hmm. national level because of the nature of their races, go to their head and think, oh, then if, you know, God, I got so much national attention running against Ted Cruz, mm-hmm. I can run for president mm-hmm. with almost like no campaign. Mm-hmm. And I, and Stacey Abrams is still saying, just as recently as yesterday, 
that she's still considering uh, running for president and that she thinks she could get in the fall. Mm-hmm. That would still be. I think she's kidding. Who's she kidding? I mean, I don't know. Right, right. I mean, given how crowded this field is, yeah. I do think. But her, so she, my, my sorry, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say I, I I see her slightly <laughs> differently as as <laughs> Beto because of I think her work on voting rights and I think it's interesting mm-hmm. that she has kind of made this a second platform and effort for her post the gubernatorial run. So I find that kind of interesting. So, so. My, I guess the question I was going to ask is what. What does this mean about Democratic efforts to recruit outstanding candidates yeah. to take back the Senate in 2020? Yeah. So um, it's, what, 47, 53 now? Yeah. Okay. Right, right. The so Democrats have to pick up four, anyhow. Right. And I think the larger question people seem to have raised in the wake of Stacey Abrams' announcement is that there are other states like Maine, North Carolina, where we just haven't seen a lot of talk yet about what a strong Democratic candidate even looks like. Or and Kentucky so, against Mitch McConnell. Right. Or Kentucky. And then I think you have John Hickenlooper and Steve Bullock, who are also very strong in their respective states, who <laughs> opted to potentially go the 2020 route, too. Um, so there is a question. It seems like there aren't that many well-known names that Democrats have um, put forth yet in some of these states and that they'll probably be relying on people who might be less known. But I think that's also not necessarily bad in that, like, when you look at Arizona, um, Kirsten Cinema wasn't necessarily the most famous person, but she did manage to flip the state after, you know, it being red for so long. Right. Yeah. Um in in addition, on top of infrastructure, there have been. I saw that uh, Senator Chris Murphy yesterday, or maybe it's today, introducing mm-hmm. a Medicare for all legislation. Is there any chance that that and and certainly that legislation has been introduced in the House by mm-hmm. Pramila Jayapal, among others? Yeah, uh, some variation of Medicare for all, either a buy-in mm-hmm. or just total single payer, which yeah. I think Pramila Jayapal wants. Um, is there any hope at all that that legislation could move this year? I think Mitch McConnell has already made it very clear. I think calls himself the Grim Reaper of all of these <laughs> progressive ideas. So it seems to me that if they do take a vote on that in the Senate, it will be similar to the Green New Deal vote that they took uh, a few months back, where he w- wanted to put Democrats on the record about you know where they stood on this policy. Meaning. No. Yeah. Meaning no. Yeah, short answer, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, short of that, I just wonder what, um, I mean, we always said that that it's only in the in-between years, non-election years, mm-hmm. that you can expect Congress to get anything done. Right, Okay, yeah. so last year were the midterms. Yeah. And they basically didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, the tax cuts were the year, be- December of the year before. Mm-hmm. There was no major legislation that, I can think of last year, was there? Not that's coming to mind, yeah, immediately. Okay, so this is the year to go back to work, and then next year's election year. Yeah. But we're already in the middle of 2020. Right, yeah. Here early in 19. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I don't see anything on the horizon other than maybe infrastructure, but the key with infrastructure is the funding. Yes. Yeah. And that's the thing that nobody's talked about yet. <laughs> and yeah, they, right? I think, made that very clear yesterday where they were like, we didn't really talk about how we're going to pay for it. And there's a fundamental difference in that Democrats want Republicans to actually undo some of those tax cuts, which just seems like 
completely non-starter for Republicans. And I think the other question of raising gas taxes is also something that's been really controversial, which is why it hasn't happened for so long. So both those issues are going to be sore subjects. Right. The idea of raising taxes, I guess, the the gas tax. Yeah. In order to pay, help pay for the infrastructure. Right. Not on the table. Right, right. right. And maybe it will be down the road, but, you know. Unlikely that Don Trump would go with that. Mm-hmm. But also the issue of maybe... Um, cutting back on some of the tax cuts in the original Donald Trump tax cut bill right. to help pay for infrastructure not on the table. Yeah, yeah. And the increase, So then where does the money come from? That is the big question. I think when we saw Trump roll out his infrastructure plan last year, the way that funding was described was incredibly vague in that he said federal investment of $200 billion coming from spending cuts, which could mean pretty much anything. And it's really uncertain where those cuts would be coming from. Right. Um, And on immigration, I guess, is the other potential area for Mm -hmm. legislation. But then it's just going to be, I mean, Donald Trump wanting more funding for the wall, right? That is the main focal point we've heard thus far. And it's, yeah, I think getting to a comprehensive immigration deal seems even farther off in the distance than something like infrastructure. Um, Another issue that it seems to me that Republicans and Democrats might be able to get together on, but Mm -hmm. maybe it's just wishful thinking on my part. Um, The New York Times yesterday, I thought, did an excellent piece about uh, companies that pay zero federal taxes, Mm -hmm. corporations, mainly because benefiting from the Trump tax cuts. Um, If you think about American companies, Amazon, Pretty big, right? Delta Airlines, Chevron, General Motors, all four of them paid zero taxes. Mm-hmm. Not only that, Amazon got a tax refund, a rebate of something like, um, yeah, $10.8 million. Um, and you know, made billions of dollars, got mm-hmm. $10.8 million back. Right. Um, is there any noise at all, even among Republicans, about taking a look at this, this corporate tax structure? There were um, 60 out of the Fortune 500 companies, 60 of them paid no taxes at all on $79 billion in corporate income. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's a good populist issue that you would think, uh, right. or just a fairness issue. Right. Um, you know, you're working as a janitor. You know, you're going to pay whatever percentage your taxes are on everything you earn. Mm-hmm. These corporations making billions and billions and billions and paying nothing. Right, right. And I think that's central to the Democrats' argument for how to pay for this infrastructure plan. They basically said we should raise the corporate tax rate to 25 <coughs> percent. Um, it was reduced to 21 percent as a result of the tax cuts and put the burden of paying for infrastructure on corporations like Amazon versus on, you know, everyday people. Right. Um, How is the um, effort going in the House? You cover both the House and the Senate, don't you? I focus a bit more on the Senate, but I I keep an eye on the House as well. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, There seems to be this, um, there's a very yeasty, active, energetic freshman class. (laughs) Uh, I've not heard that metaphor before, but I like it. You know what, right? Yeah. These, are, these are these are young people who are right there, and they don't believe in the old theory that you have to 
kind of keep your head down and mm-hmm. hunker down and just kind of do your job and, yeah. and not make any noise for the first year or two years. Absolutely, yeah. How's that going? I mean, is the uh, <laughs> old guard sort of weathering this? I think it's been interesting to see Democratic leadership try to keep that unifying message with all these different voices, especially on the issue of impeachment. I mean, I think you had a lot of progressives who've already signed on to, you know, start the process of articles of impeachment where you have the leadership kind of skirting that issue and being much more cautious about building that argument. Um, yeah. And I think thus far they've they've stuck together in a in an OK fashion. Um, but, you know, but the more Donald Trump interferes with or tries to block the hearings. Right. The more right. pressure is going to build for impeachment. Absolutely. Which yeah. I think is Donald Trump's plan. I think he's trying yeah. to walk them into that trap. Right. Anyway. Right. Man, yeah. you got your hands full. Lee. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming in. All right. <laughs> Thank Sh- you for sharing having with me. us. Great yeah. insights. Vox. Vox.com. <laughs> and when we come back, Alex Seitzwell joins us for NBC is the News. Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how you can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Robert Mueller writes to Bill Barr and says, You misrepresented me. That letter coming forward on the reported by the Washington Post on the day that Bill Barr testifies in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Look for fireworks later today, starting at two hours from now, 10 o'clock Eastern. Hello, everybody. It's May Day, the first day of May 2019 on a Wednesday. This is the Bill Press Show. It's good to see you. Thank you for being part of the program as we reach out to you nationwide, coast to coast, on the radio, on television, and online with all the news of the day. Yes, indeed, Bill Barr's testimony in the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to be the number one item today. Um... And the release of that, not that, not we haven't seen the whole letter yet, but the report on that letter, a very unhappy special counsel Robert Mueller wrote to Bill Barr back on March 27, will certainly dominate that hearing. Uh, and a big infrastructure meeting down at the White House yesterday where all parties walked out with smiles and said, we actually agreed on something, uh, not a trillion dollars for a trillion dollars for infrastructure, no, two trillion dollars for infrastructure. We'll see how that goes. And meanwhile, Joe Biden soaring ahead in most of the national polls after his launch. Alex Seitzwald covers the 2020 race on everything else political for NBC News and kind enough to join us in studio. Alex, how are you? Morning, Bill. Good. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. You were out in South Bend with Mayor Pete. That's right. Yeah. The uh, the latest. Is he still the mayor? He's still the mayor until the end of this year. They have off-year uh-huh. elections. So there's actually a, a big primary to replace him coming up uh, a week from <laughs> yesterday, uh, next Tuesday, that will uh, be the big primary. The, the, the so he's camp- not running for both? 
He's not running for both. Yeah, he oh, decided okay. against running for re-election. He could have run for a third term. He decided to not and yeah. uh, run for president instead. You know, like every mayor of South Bend uh, typically <laughs> does. <laughs> I, I saw yesterday that the mortgage on Mayor Pete's house in South Bend. $450. And I've seen the house. It's a beautiful, very large house. Makes me wonder what I'm doing uh, paying just a little bit more than that here in D.C. Slightly, slightly more. Yeah. Slightly for, more. For slightly less space. For slightly less space. <laughs> yeah. All right. Here we go. Lots to talk about. Alex and I and you will all get right into it. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. You know, it's uh, baseball season. I know we're in the middle of the NBA yeah, playoffs, yeah. and a lot of people are paying attention to that, but it is baseball season. Well, here's the problem. Baseball has been seeing fewer and fewer fans showing up to actual games. The attendance levels, when you look at last year compared to this year, they are way down. In fact, some teams are reporting double-digit drops. For example, the Toronto Blue Jays, if you look at 2018 in the same time period, the percentage, 33% uh, drop in wow. fans attending the games from last year. So they've got a bit of a problem. Well, for me, I feel guilty now because I haven't been to a game yet. You haven't been to a game, game yet. yet. But it's a little too chilly. Yeah, okay, so they point that out, right? But they, they're comparing this to the same time last year. Because that is always the problem about going to early baseball games. Yeah. It's a little too cold. Uh, we haven't gotten into summer yet. No, I like to go shorts and t-shirt. Absolutely. Kind, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but it, it is falling. It's not a great trend for baseball. And we'll see if it corrects itself once the weather gets a little bit nicer. Uh, okay, I, I'm going to tread lightly with this story, but it is worth pointing out that California is in the middle of a herpes outbreak. And they are saying that part of the problem is Coachella, the big music <laughs> festival that happens oh. in California. You get a lot of young people there partying, camping out, hanging out. The disease spreads very quickly in that environment. And California is saying, just be careful, use precaution. We all know what that is. We all know what that means. Mm -hmm. uh, so be safe out there, everybody. Yeah, there's just one word for it. Yes. Valtrex. Yeah, that's right. There you go. There you go. <laughs> This is the Bill Press Show. Two trillion dollars. Yes, two trillion dollars. That's what Donald Trump and Democrats agreed to spend on rebuilding our infrastructure yesterday. <laughs> the, only other, the only unanswered question is, how are they going to pay for it? Well, they're going to meet in three weeks and try to figure that out. Details. Details, details. Hello, everybody. On Wednesday, May 1st, May Day 2019, good to see you. Thank you for joining in the Bill Press Show as we reach out to you coast to coast from our studio on Capitol Hill with the help this hour of our good friend from NBC News, Alex Seitzwald, covers the political front for NBC uh, and has been on the road, off the road, following all the candidates. Uh, Alex, it's a, it's a pretty lively time for this early, right? You know? 
Uh, 20 candidates in this race so yeah. far, and at least three more potentially. Well, not to mention Bill Weld. Right? Not to mention Bill Weld. I'm talking on the Democratic side, yeah. Yes. And then we have uh, one Republican, <laughs> Bill Weld, the former governor of Massachusetts. Larry Hogan, I just saw this morning, started a super PAC, the governor of uh, Maryland, another Republican. So there could be some more action there. And at least three more Democrats looking at getting in soon, potentially uh, Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York. No. Uh, he did, There was just a poll in Iowa that that people oh. think was clearly his. Michael Bennett from Colorado and Steve Bollock, the governor of Montana, who I think any day now is uh, going to make it official. Yeah. It's, I, I, I keep hearing from people that Bollock has already made up his mind. It's just... He's been waiting for the, the legislative session in Montana to end. They, they're one of those states that meets once every two years. So, you know, you don't want to miss uh, a day. Is there room that. for anybody else? I mean, there's literally no more room on the debate stage for anyone else. There are 20 spots on the debate stage, 10 over two nights. And so we are at capacity right now. Not everyone is qualified of those 20 candidates. Uh, so if they if everyone does qualify, they'll have to go to these extreme measures and do tie breaking. But, you know, I think for for most voters, what's the difference between 20 and 23 that they, they haven't heard of, you know, seven of the 10 of these candidates so far. So. Um, let's talk about Joe Biden's launch. The Bidening. The yes. Bi- yeah, the, the Bidening. Yeah, that's what I'm I calling like it. Good. I like um, Looked pretty good. Yeah. In terms of a launch, I'm just, you know, again, I keep talking about it. I'm not endorsing anybody yet. So if we say anything good or bad about anybody, don't take it the wrong way. But we just, we've judged every one of them by their launch. Beto's launch, you know, Bernie's launch, Kamala Harris's launch, Elizabeth Warren. And now Joe. I think a very good launch for for Joe Biden. Better than I expected, I I will admit. Uh, You know, he's not the the prohibitive front runner that Hillary Clinton was in 2016. But if I had to be any candidate in the race right now, I think I'd probably be the one who is leading every single poll at 40 percent, who raised the most money on his first day in office, who has uh, all the endorsements. There's a lot of people, a lot of smart people in the party who thought he would flame out immediately. thought he wouldn't even run. And and here he is, uh, you know, earning a spot, commanding a spot at the top of the ticket, and really owning the front runner role. Do you want to be front runner this early? Uh, no, I mean, in in a lot of ways, you don't, because you are putting up a flag and you're declaring that you are the target for everyone to attack, and you can't punch down because that looks bad. So, but uh, you're going to receive a lot of incoming fire, and they have been, unlike that, no. All the candidates have been very uh, respectful of each other. There's been very little uh, mixing it up between them, except for Joe Biden. Uh, he gets the unique treatment. The day he got in, almost everyone sent out fundraising emails saying Joe Biden's going to raise a lot of money. We need to go after him. Bernie Sanders has been you know, calling out his vote for the Iraq war. Elizabeth Warren uh, said he was on the side of the, the credit card companies and the banks and their big bankruptcy fight. So it's open season on him uh, right now. But he's looking stronger than... So- so here's what I hear. Yeah. And, you know, um, you know, and all of our listeners and viewers know, um, I'm a Bernie bro, was a Bernie bro in 2016. <laughs> Again, I'm not endorsing anybody here, here but uh, that's my kind of, he's my kind of Democrat, if sure. you know, even though he's not a Democrat. Right. Um, but what I hear from my progressive friends and from more middle-of-the-road Democrats across the country, so I'm, I'm just stunned by how much I hear, is, Look, it's great to have all this excitement with all these candidates. And it's great to have young, gay, straight, male, female, whatever. But, you know, we took a fly in the flyer in 2016 yeah. and Donald Trump got in. And right now we can't take any chances. We need somebody who is steady, solid, experienced. Boom. Electable. That's the, electable, one, that's the word. Electable, the word. Yep. Boom. Translated. 
Joe. Yep. So people that I find surprised would be supporting Joe, you know, think that he's the answer. This I, I have heard this exact thing from so many people of all Is it valid? Different demographics. Well, it's it's one of those things that's valid if you believe it's valid. <laughs> if it you works, know? it's valid, I guess. And and we'll never know. And and what, what it's it's like a market until in, until, right. You know, it's like a market where you don't have uh, perfect information, and so it's kind of the wisdom of the crowds, and the and and that wisdom is is not necessarily as wise as it seems. That's what a primary is, right? Because you're you're putting up who you think is the most electable person against Donald Trump, but no one really knows because you're not going to have the that election until after you have your primary election. And there's a lot of research to show that people believe the country is more conservative than it actually is. And uh, that we, you know, overlearn the the lessons of the last war, and that lesson was that well, a woman was was too much changed too quickly. So we need, you know, a nice old white man. I think is the way that a lot of these people are yeah. are thinking. And there's the, my friend calls it uh, pundititis, which now now voters are thinking as pundits oh, yeah. instead of instead of voters. Instead of thinking who do I want, they're they're imagining what some mythical swing voter in the Midwest wants, and they think that that person wants Joe Biden. And by the way, Joe Biden is clearly left of center. I mean, he's not a Joe Manchin, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. And and he fifteen dollars minimum wage, Medicare buy-in. I think he qualifies yeah. as a progressive. He's just not as progressive, if you will, as Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. Um, a little sign of that yesterday in an interview with Robin Roberts, um, where he he actually went to the I word, which surprised me, talking about whether Democrats what they should be doing in response to the Mueller report. Here he is. What the Congress should do, and they are doing, is investigate that. And if, in fact, <laughs> they block the investigation, they have no alternative but to go to the only other constitutional resort they have is impeachment. That's further than I th- thought he might go. Yeah, well, I think it, fl- it plays into this, this really interesting dynamic where uh, some of the more moderate candidates have been willing to go harder at Trump because as they see it, and, and uh, Biden has used this exact word, Trump is an aberration in yeah. the historical norm. And, and they just want to get back to normal, basically. They say, you know, this is, this is Biden's whole thing. Uh, but we, you loved Obama. I was Obama's right-hand man. We need to, to, to put everything else aside and just focus on defeating Trump. And that is not what Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are saying. They're saying, yeah, Trump is bad, but he's the product of this much larger thing. And we need to go after that bigger thing, not just Trump. Trump is, is kind of a, a, a sideshow. And so that's a, that's a big philosophical difference uh, in the party. And I think that's why you see people like Biden maybe talking more about impeachment than you might think mm-hmm. otherwise. I think that is the argument within the party right now. Yeah. Do you think that? Everything should go back to normal. A lot of people felt great on the surface anyway. When Barack Obama was president, things felt stable. A lot of people didn't, but, you know, uh, a lot of people did. Uh, And do we want to go back to that? Or is the cat out of the bag, right? Has the genie left the bottle and there is no such thing as normal anymore? And the crazy world that we live in now politically is normal. Mm-hmm. And look, and- Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, I think, <laughs> are are very much in the camp of things aren't normal anymore. We have to combat this in a very radical way versus Joe Biden. That's like, I'm going to keep the trains running on time. Things are going to run very smooth and efficiently and you'll feel better about your life. Right. You know, as you've you've and others have written too, uh, and observed that from the beginning, from his announcement video last Thursday morning, 
Joe Biden is going after Donald Trump. I mean, it's like he's running a, real, a general election campaign. Right. On day one. That's, and that's, day one. That's, that's, to- and that, and that's part of the electability thing because he wants to be seen taking the fight to Donald Trump, giving primary voters a taste of what it would look like for him in a general election. He wants them to think of him in that mold as the candidate who's taking on Donald Trump. They, all these, you know, other candidates can have their little fight about Medicare for all and a jobs guarantee and whatever else they want to talk about. I'm going after Donald Trump. That's that's his uh, lane. Um, so there were three polls yesterday that I saw. Um, and to the extent early polls, again, don't mean that much, but um, they're a little snapshot, as we always say. So on CNN, Joe Biden, 39, Bernie, 15. Yeah. 24 points. I mean, I find it hard to believe. Politico morning consult. 36 for Joe, 22 for Bernie, so a 14-point lead. The Quinnipiac, 38 for Joe. They've got uh, Elizabeth Warren in second place, but 11 for Bernie. Yep. I mean, 27, 24 points, 14 points even. And these are all, all three of these polls showed a big launch bump for Joe Biden. For Joe, yeah. Which none of the other candidates have really gotten. They've gotten a little bit, you know, yeah, but, it's, but it, it could be easily dismissed as noise. This is real. And if you look at the uh, rear clear politics or any of these polling averages, you see this big spike for, for Biden. And you wonder, so where are those votes coming from? And it's coming from Bernie Sanders because you see the spike, really? up, spike yeah. up for Biden and you see a spike down. For, for Bernie Sanders. And you wouldn't expect that ideologically, but they're the two best known candidates and they're also demographically, it's very similar. They're both, you know, well, white men in their 70s. And and I think that's actually how a lot of voters are thinking. Peter and uh, Peter can tell you, and I, maybe you've been in, but I've been saying for a while that I think the contest here is going to be down to the end. It's going to be Bernie versus Joe. It, it, it's very possible. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very possible. One thing that I think is important to remember, I saw this yesterday, right? If you go back to the presidential race of 2008, the, this, my point here is everything is very, very early. This is yeah. very, very early. Sure. You know who the Republican frontrunner was this time in 2008? Jeb Bush. In 2008. in 2008. Oh, 2008. Rudy? Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani. Had like a 12-point yeah. lead, by the way, over <laughs> other Republican uh, contenders yeah. in 2008. Yeah. So, like, a lot of things can change. I'm, I, things kind of feel a little bit different these days. Like, you know, I said as soon as Donald Trump got into the race, he's going to be the nominee. Right. I think you could hold that and keep that going for the whole time these days easier than you used to. But anything could happen. Yeah. Anything no, could happen. There are a lot of reasons why Rudy fell. A hundred percent. Remember he said, I'm not going to do anything until Florida. I'm going right. to ignore Iowa, ignore New Hampshire. I'm so good. So everybody will want me. I can wait until Florida. And mm-hmm. and I will say I've been impressed with Biden's fundraising numbers. I've been impressed with his polling. I have not been impressed with him on the stump. He is... He's never been that great at, right, at it, right? And he doesn't seem to have got better. He could get better, uh, but th- there was this there was this idea that he would have a glass jaw essentially, and that he would be, mm-hmm. you know, one punch and he'd be out. And that's not oh. that's not the case. We're in a different position than that. He's yeah. for four months. He has had basically nothing but bad headlines. Yeah. There's been yeah. the Me Too stuff, all reexamination of his record, and his campaign didn't exist to push back on that at all. So there's only been negative stuff out there, and his numbers have been durable they've been steady he gets in they've gone up yes name id but bernie sanders is the same name id as him so he's he's in this race he you might not met, last it all met, the way though you mentioned that um alluded to to the candidates not going after each other yet yeah um sort of started a little bit cory booker yesterday um he was um news hour pbs 
PBS NewsHour. Yeah. And he was asked about a comment that Bernie Sanders made in his town hall up in New Hampshire on CNN about felons in prison being allowed to vote. Yeah. Uh, here's Cory Booker. If Bernie Sanders wants to get into involved in the conversation about whether Dylan Roof and the Marathon Bomber should mm. have the right to vote, my focus is liberating <laughs> black and brown people and low-income people from prison because we have a system in America, as Brian Stevenson says, it treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. My focus is tearing down the system of mass incarceration so that we don't even have to have the debate about people's voting rights because they're not going to prison in the first place. People that don't belong there are there, and I'm going to stop that as president. Yeah. Yeah, Ooh. Bernie Sanders can give the right to vote to Dylan Roof. Yeah, not me. Just to choose of all the of all the felons in prison to to choose that person. Yeah, right. That's a very or the marathon bomber. Or the marathon or whatever. bomber. Yeah, yeah. But, um, certainly, I'm sure this is not an issue that Bernie would choose to run on. But he did say what he said, which I think I've made this point that I think the principle of it is valid. Yeah, but the the validity as a political issue <laughs> is questionable. Well, this uh, so I actually hadn't heard that that Cory Booker clip, but it is really interesting. I think this is one of those places where uh, this Cory Booker's attack on Bernie Sanders could actually sort of help both of them in a way. Uh, Because also yesterday, yes, I don't think it's Bernie Sanders' top issue, but he did he wrote an op-ed in USA Today saying I believe even Paul Manafort and uh, Michael Cohen should be allowed to vote in prison, kind of trolling uh, the Trump side by saying that and and defending his position on this, not running away from it. And I think that's part of what people love about Bernie Sanders. People love Bernie Sanders is that if the principle is right, even if the politics are not, right. he will take a stand and defend yeah. it. Yeah. No, he didn't back down at all. Yeah. I mean, and even at the town hall, he didn't back down. Yeah. And he could have pointed out, um, I think Ryan Riley from HuffPost was making the point on the show the other day that, you know, a very small fraction of the number of people who are in prison for felons have committed violent crimes, right, that we would find so heinous that we would even consider taking the vote away. And Bernie, But Bernie said he didn't make that point, but he did make the point that who decides, you know, which crimes are all eligible and which ones are not, right? Once you start down that slope, you yeah. got a lot of problems. It's, an, it's a very interesting uh, kind of philosophical and legal <laughs> debate. And then you could also do the flip side. You know, what about people who are not in prison but are horrible well, people, I, I, David Duke or, you know, whoever, choose choose your, your, your person, uh, uh, should, they, should they be allowed to vote? And then once you start saying, well, no, we can't take away their right to vote, then why not that's, you know, somebody in prison? That, that's so funny because before we started our show today, in, in our little show meeting, we were talking about that, and I, and I made the point, there are a lot of people who are not in prison that I'd like to take the vote away from. Yeah. Roy Moore, <laughs> David Duke, yeah, you mentioned it, right? Yeah. A few more. Um, you talked about the debates. Um, so we're almost two months away from the first debate. Yeah, end of June. Uh, tell us again, just so everybody knows, what the criteria for getting on the stage are. Okay, yeah. First debate in Miami. There's two nights back-to-back. Ten, on NBC. On news. NBC. And on NBC and MSNBC. Yes, thank you for helping me plug my own employer. Um, it's two nights back to back. It's going to be fantastic. Watch it on NBC. Uh, the the to get on that stage, the the qualifications are fairly low. There's two options. You can either uh, get one percent in three polls. That's kind of been the. Are the, they identified polls yet? They they have identified the polls. Yeah, the the major major independent pollsters who you might Quinnipiac, Monmouth, uh, you know, an, uh, media polls, NBC, New York Times, basically any poll that you might see that okay. that meets oh, okay. you know high yeah. level yeah. is a, is a quality poll. Um, 1% in three polls. Yeah. 
And those can also be state polls in the early states, Iowa, New Hampshire, uh-huh. South Carolina. That's kind of historically been um, a typical mm-hmm. threshold. Then the new thing that they're doing this year is you can also qualify by getting 65,000. Either or. Either right. or. Yep. Uh, 65,000 donors, not donations, but actual people contributing to you. Uh, and then there's a, a sub clause there where you have to have 200 people from t- at least 20 states. Yeah. Okay. So either or. Now, the New York Times today, um, well, before I get to that, I thought when I heard this, I thought that's fair. That's good. Yeah. It, it doesn't mean that just the name ID decides everything. Um, but I did ask Tom Perez when he was here in studio one day, the chairman of the DNC, uh, is there a minimum contribution? Like 65,000 donors sounds like a lot. Yeah. But I said, and he said, no. And I said, well, I mean, so I could give a dollar. Yeah. And they would count. That's true, isn't it? It's not only is it true, they, they are explicitly asking for this. The, the candidates are gaming the system. That's my point. Yeah. They made it possible to game the system. They, they, they absolutely did. Um, are really taking it to extremes. John Delaney, who is, uh, you know, been in this race for a year and a half now and is independently wealthy, he's worth two or three hundred million dollars. <laughs> he is saying, if you give me one dollar to my campaign, I will give two dollars to a charity of your choosing. Nothing says he can't do that. And some charities make some money, but that's certainly not, you know, so there are a lot of people who are donating to John Delaney's campaign to get him on the debate stage. He's also been doing things like selling uh, water bottles at a steeply discount, a subsidized price. So you can buy a, a insulated thermos for $5, which would you know retail for like $25. And he's subsidizing the price so much so that it has to have a disclaimer. So that water bottle, it says paid for by the John Delaney campaign. Uh, and the other thing that this has done is it's made a way for kind of fringy candidates who we might not typically expect to get, make it to the debate page being able to get on. So Andrew Yang, who is this entrepreneur from San Francisco, never held elective office. Um, One of his campaign positions, this is an actual part of his campaign, is that he is against circumcision. Uh, This is a a, a real thing. I mean, he has, Mm -hmm. you know, much more substantive policies too, but I'm just giving you a taste of, you know, who he is. He's also for universal... Basic income. Yeah, that's that's kind of his uh, his calling card that got him a big following on Reddit. He's gotten more than 65,000 donors, so he's going to be on the debate stage too. So some people have said that you know you 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 made this too easy to game. You made it the bar too low. But you have to strike that balance between being open and democratic and also trying to you know be a little bit of a gatekeeper. But the one that I learned yesterday is that Tulsi Gabbard will be on the stage because the extreme right wing white supremacist nas- white nationalist website Daily Stormer yeah encouraged their people to send. Tulsi Gabbard a dollar so she can get on the stage. And, yep, and it worked. That's that they literally did that. Da- actually, David Duke, who we were just talking about, he has also uh, encouraged the same thing, and she has rejected Why? all of this support. Why? It's a little unclear. I mean, th- there's uh, it's a kind of broke. She uh, is is Hindu and has ties to a um, Hindu nationalist organization in India, which is kind of an ethno nationalist. Um, political party, you know, Prime Minister Modi's party, and they view a kind of similarity in wanting to keep their country for their people. So David Duke and white nationalists see a similar thing. They also have some agreements on foreign policy. It's a little bit weird. Uh, it's not entirely clear. But um, and I think there's also just, you know, a desire for for the right to kind of mess with so chaos in the in the on the Democratic side. So now 
based on those qualifications. Yeah. Right. So the New York Times point reports this morning that out of 20, 17 have qualified. Um, qualified with both the poll and the donor requirements are Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris, Beto O'Rourke, Amy Klobuchar, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Andrew Yang, both, and Tulsi Gabbard, both. Surprised that Tulsi has the 1%, frankly. But yeah. Qualified only with the polls, not with the donors so far, but you don't need that. Right, you One either is, or, yep. Are Cory Booker, Julian Castro, Kirsten Gillibrand, John Delaney, John Hickenlooper, uh, Jay Inslee, Paul Ryan, and Eric Swalwell. I didn't think Inslee had already qualified, but according to the New York Times, yes. The three not currently qualified are the uh, um, Wayne Messam from Florida, Marianne Williamson, and Seth Moulton. Who just got in the race. Just got in the race, yeah. Uh, and it's just say three more could get in, so we could have as many as 17 and maybe as many as 20. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I would expect Moulton to, to qualify uh, for sure. Marion Williamson, who's a um, kind of new age uh, self-help author, I yeah. think is a fair way to characterize her. I don't know about her. Wayne Messam, he's the the mayor of the city in Florida. His campaign has already uh, missed payroll, and, you know, there seems to be a lot of internal issues there, so I don't I yeah. think he's flaming out. But uh, otherwise, yeah, I mean, we could end up... So then there are these unspecified... If, if they end up with more than 20 candidates, there are these unspecified tiebreakers that they haven't really uh, detailed what would what that would look like. But, you know, either probably some combination of a higher polling threshold or a higher donor threshold. Mm -hmm. um, so you were out in South Bend, Indiana, and certainly Mayor Pete is enjoying a moment right now. The booty bump. Uh, is it a moment or is it going to last? Well, look, I don't think that we can say he's, you know, the front runner or going to be the nominee or anything like that, of course. But I think he has earned a spot for himself in the top tier. And that is a pretty big accomplishment for a guy who is yeah. 37 year old mayor of a town that's, by the way, a, a fifth the size of Omaha, Nebraska. This is this is a small a small city. You could you could almost fit the entire city of South Bend in the Notre Dame football stadium. That's <laughs> really? how, that's how small <laughs> yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, so you know, like the fact that like the, the, those names you just read through that Cory Booker and Kirsten Gillibrand. If you had told me a year ago that they would be underneath. Pete Buttigieg, I, I never would have... They are in the polls. I it, mean, he's he, he's up there with right below maybe Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. Yeah, right, right exactly. So he's kind of broken out of, of yeah. that of that lower pack. And I think that's that's uh, a big accomplishment. I think he's going to fade a little bit. He just had a big, I think kind of his first unforced error uh, last night, this morning. He there, BuzzFeed did a story uh, with this measles outbreak. They asked every 2020 candidate for their position on vaccines. Yeah, man. Uh, and and he said he supports personal and religious uh, exemptions, except for if there's a, a, a public health crisis. He kind of gave this measly answer. There was huge backlash online, and within like 12 hours, he completely backtracked on his position. Oh, really? They put a yeah. new statement saying, "Oh, never mind. Actually, he he only supports it for um, health cases," which is the 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 right. The, I'm doing air quotes here. Um, the the right answer. So he came around to it, but it was it was a he, for for a guy who has been like almost robotically on message and like perfect as a as a perfect candidate. This was a this was an interesting misstep. Uh, I read um, the New York Times has a front page article this morning about a, a lot of his support, right 
understandably, has come from the LGBT community. Yeah. Because you know now they have not just a candidate for Senate or for House, but actually the first openly gay candidate for president. And um, that in addressing LGBT groups around the country, um, he has always made the point, I know there may be other people you like. I know, you know, I, I, so I'm not asking for monogamy, <laughs> right? You know, you can you can sleep with Bernie and Kamala or whomever <laughs> else, right, as long as you sleep with me too, right, or get meaning, give money. Yeah. Uh, now he is saying, yeah, I want, I want you just for me, right? He stepped it up to the level where, yeah, forget these other candidates. I'm the one. So, well, this is going to be the the big. I think he got into the top tier with that first message, where right, he right. was not seen as a threat to anyone. So, so I talked to donors who big big time donors who had committed to like Susie Tompkins Beal is a big California donor, big Hillary Clinton bundler. Um, a lot of other donors watch what she does. She had committed to Kamala Harris early, but she held a fundraiser for Pete Buttigieg. That was fine when he was polling, you know, yeah, down yeah. in the nether regions. But now that he's a real candidate, I, I think that that's going to start to change. And uh, I, I know other campaigns who I can't name have been pushing opposition research on him. Uh, the The tide has has shifted on him, where he's no longer seen as this, you know, nice. Oh, what isn't it great for Democrats that we have an openly gay candidate? Uh, as long as he's down there, he's now. Oh, he's a real candidate. We have to take him seriously. Right. Uh, and aside from the uh, 2020 race, another big political event today where Attorney General Bill Barr testifies in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee on the day after the Washington Post reports that special counsel Robert Mueller wrote Bill Barr a blistering letter saying you misrepresented what my report is all about. Zoe Tillman from BuzzFeed News joins us, me, Alex Seitzwald, and all of you. Uh, for the next half hour, we'll take a quick break and be right back. This is the Bill Press Show. And on a Wednesday, May 1, it is the Bill Press Show. Good to have you with us today. Thanks so much for joining us as we come to you from our studio in Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Brought to you today by the members of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, members of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone a proud union family that feeds, serves, and provides for America's hardworking families. And it is the UFCW, that is the union of choice for the Bernie Sanders campaign and for the Pete Buttigieg campaign, hmm. two campaigns that have uh, unionized and both of them joining the UFCW. On that political note, we welcome back uh, Alex Seitzwald, who's here as a friend of Bill for the entire hour. Alex. Thanks and for having me. Joined by Zoe Tillman who covers mainly legal matters for BuzzFeed News. It's always good to see you, Happy as to be always. Here. Thank you. So Bill Barr is going to testify today in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Back on last time he was there was April 9, and Senator Chris Van Hollen uh, asked a very pertinent question about how closely do you and Special Counsel Robert Mueller agree on what you said is in his report. Did Bob Mueller support your conclusion? I don't know whether Bob Mueller supported my conclusion. Hmm. Well, now we know he didn't, right? And in fact, most likely Bill, I would say for sure, Bill Barr knew at the time that Robert Mueller did not support his conclusion because, Zoe, the Washington Post reports yesterday that on March 27, a good week or more before this testimony, 
Robert Mueller wrote Bill Barr a letter saying, you misrepresented me. Right. And we haven't seen the letter. It hasn't been released. DOJ and the special counsel's office are refusing to release a copy of it, and no one's published it. But according to the report, it says that Mueller wrote a letter, an extraordinary act of putting something on the record, not just a phone call, saying, I don't think that your letter to Congress summarizing my principal conclusions put things in context or had the nuance necessary. And then the Post reported there was a follow-up call where apparently the attorney general said, did I get anything wrong? Was it inaccurate? And the special counsel, according to DOJ, said no. And according to the reporting, said no. It was just his concern about how the media was covering what was in that letter. So there's some, appears to be some gray area that DOJ is saying shows that Mueller didn't say he disagreed with Barr's letter, just that there was some concern about media coverage. But I think the text of the letter that we saw from the Post reflected serious concern from the special counsel about the substance of what the attorney general told Congress. And we had heard before that a couple of members of Mueller's team had told reporters that they they felt that Barr did not accurately reflect what was in the report. You're right. We haven't seen the letter. Uh, there's one sentence quoted in the in the Post this morning that says Mueller's letter to Barr says, quote, this threatens to undermine the special purpose for which the department appointed the special counsel. Right. That's and it, pretty strong stuff. Yeah. I mean, the special counsel for the duration of the investigation has let the work speak for itself. Right. We haven't heard from him. And that was a deliberate choice. They really felt that the indictments, the work they were putting out was all they needed to say. And I think that in their mind, it seems like carried over to the report. And they felt that this would speak for the work itself. And there was clearly concern about someone else, even if it's the attorney general, coming in and trying to summarize or analyze or in some way, you know, put some kind of gloss on the actual or work spin. product. <laughs> I yeah. won't say it, but <laughs> they think there was some concern about having the work just not speak for itself. Right. So, Alex, this certainly increases the pressure on Robert Mueller to testify himself, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's, uh, I, Democrats very much want that uh, to happen. I think he, uh, as Zoe has been saying, has been trying to avoid putting himself uh, out there personally and let the work for, speak for itself. Yeah, right. It, but it, it kind of reminds me of uh, <coughs> when Comey gave his famous speech or uh, press conference yeah. about Hillary Clinton. In both cases, there was no, there was not enough evidence to prosecute, but they found you know, wrongdoing, carelessness. And so Comey went out there and himself said all this stuff because he was afraid that the attorney general at the time uh, in the Obama administration would, 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 right. would, Loretta Lynch would bury it. And so he wanted to get it out there, put it out there on the record. Uh, and this, Mueller went by the book this time and, you know, sent it up the, the flagpole. But the the concern, the same concern that Comey had came uh, more to be true in, in this case. Right. And it's pretty clear, isn't it, that... Um Again, I know I'm speaking as a Democrat here, but it seems clear to me that Bill Barr had a mission, and part of the mission was to downplay the the powerful conclusions of the Mueller report. I think what we saw were quotes in the letter that were partial quotes. I think there was certainly an effort to present the conclusion that the attorney general reached, not necessarily the just the facts of what the special counsel said in the report there was a step further that they took and you know when you read the report and all the quotes in context they they were different they were different in context and they had different meaning um 
and you know whether this really pushes Mueller to step forward and say yes I'm going to testify and then there's the separate question of whether he'll be allowed to testify he is still within the Justice Department the Attorney General can exercise some control over whether he is allowed to testify as long as he is in the Justice Department he's still special counsel officially um, so you know we'll see if this finally prompts him to speak we haven't heard his voice for years um, so Alex have you ever been in the Trump Hotel in Washington I have it, it's uh, it's very nice. It's very expensive. Uh, very expensive. It's a beautiful building. Yeah, it is. it is. And I think the lobby. I've have I've been in it. Yeah, in the lobby. The lobby bar is, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Very well done. Yeah, you know. Um, so there are lawsuits pending about, of course, the Trump International Hotel, because of the emoluments clause. Um, and yesterday, a federal judge here in Washington said that one of the lawsuits brought by Democrats in Congress. There's a parallel one brought by the attorneys general of Maryland and District of Columbia challenging the hotel because it's, they say, in violation of the emoluments clause. Federal judge yesterday said that that second lawsuit can go forward. Yeah, this is a fascinating set of cases to me. It's a very rarely enforced section of the U.S. Constitution. Rarely enforced? Who ever heard of the Emoluments Clause before? I had certainly never heard of it before. Now, I mean, that's a, the yeah, word just yeah. rolls off the yeah. tongue, emoluments. Um, you know, you, you recite it in, in eighth grade uh, social studies class along with the preamble and the declaration. I mean, the, the Emoluments Clause, of sure. You know. All of that. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Of course. Well, and it, it serves a really important purpose, and there are really two sections. One is the domestic Emoluments Clause, and one is the an emoluments clause, and they basically say that a government official cannot receive an emolument while they're in office from a domestic government actor or a foreign government actor. And the purpose has always been understood to be there can't be some kind of quid pro quo. You can't be benefiting personally, profiting from the office that you hold, including the office of the president. So, you know, these two cases, the one by D.C. and Maryland, is just about Trump's hotel. As we may all recall, the president refused to divest from his businesses when he took office. He said, I'm giving my son's control, but yeah. I'm not getting rid of my own interest right. in all of my businesses. Um, so the hotel is, you know, taking business from foreign governments, domestic, you know, state officials are coming and staying there. Uh, it's getting tax breaks, other benefits. Um, and then separately, Trump's business empire writ large does business with foreign governments all over the world. And there's evidence to show that foreign governments and industry groups have increased their business to the Trump uh, hotels. We don't know why, but one well, could infer. Are, well, they've said there have been articles saying uh, yeah. we're doing it because was, uh, how could you come to the United States and to Washington and not stay in the president's hotel? Yeah, I think some of them have been pretty upfront and frank about why they stayed there. Right. You know, if they have a chance to see the president at reception or the White House or something, they'll talk about, hey, love your hotel, you know. Right. And he loves that stuff. So basically where these cases are now is um, the president and DOJ have argued that an emolument is actually a very narrow term. It doesn't mean any profit. It has to be explicitly a quid pro quo where the president agrees in an you know employer-employee relationship, I'm going to do something for you and you're going to pay me. And the challengers, congressional Democrats in the latest case in D.C., Maryland, and the other, and now two federal judges have said no. It was meant to really cover a broad range of things of value that you could get for holding office, regardless of whether there's a clear, explicit employment arrangement. And so last night we saw a second federal judge say 
yes, this is broad. And yes, the case has alleged that there have been violations of this clause and this case can move forward. So they move forward, both cases. That's right. right. One case is on appeal already in the Fourth Circuit and we're waiting for an opinion on that. And now we assume that they'll appeal in the D.C. case as well and that'll go up to the D.C. Circuit. And perhaps we're on a, a nice path to the Supreme Court and we can get some kind of definitive ruling on this clause that no one ever thought anyone would care about. <laughs> and if the courts rule against the president, then uh, impeachment hearings begin. <laughs> <laughs> well, the courts can enjoin him to act. They can enjoin him to not be in violation, which would mean he would have to divest. Surrender the lease, maybe. Right. Or give up being president, but one of those is more extreme than the other. More likely than the other, right? Too, right? But and it, and he could also potentially try to fight it, and then we could have a real constitutional crisis sure. involving all three branches of government, right? Because the it's House Democrats are a party in one, right? Suit. Yes. It, it's, yes, it's it's in the courts, and the president is the subject of the suit. So that's pretty. Could be, the could be pretty, pretty thorny, yeah. Well, we'll talk about the, I want to go there next, the constitutional crisis of real clash between the executive and the legislative branch is we see unfolding in the president's attempts to block any documents or witnesses or financial records or tax returns or whatever being given to the Democrats as part of their oversight hearings. Right. right which he is saying, no, we're not going to cooperate. And in fact... The latest, a couple of days ago, suing two banks because apparently the banks were cooperating with the uh, with the staffs of the oversight or judiciary committee. I forget what. Or, or the intelligence and financial financial services, services. right? And then judiciary is the other. Yeah. Two lawsuits. Yeah. But all the so are Donald together. Trump. So the banks were cooperating with the staff with the congressional staffs in preparing for some hearings, and Donald Trump has sued the banks now to prevent them from cooperating or responding to subpoenas issued by the legislative branch. Right. Um, there are. Where does this go? This goes to court forever. I mean, these are legal battles that can go on for months and years. We're actually still, they're still in court on Obama era, an Obama era subpoena fight between Eric Holder and House Oversight over <laughs> a ATF operation that went badly. Um, that's still in court years later. So this is a way for them to delay at least for some significant period of time, perhaps having to deal with these subpoenas. Once you go to court, courts generally will say, until this is resolved, you cannot enforce the subpoena. Um, they can appeal up and down the chain. Um, so it's a way to stop it without actually getting House Democrats to withdraw these subpoenas. Was it, wasn't Holder found in contempt of Congress? He was, and then they sued to enforce <clears throat> that subpoena to him. So that was how that they also made a criminal referral to the U.S. attorney's office, which went nowhere. Um, but those documents are still you know, being negotiated over and being litigated over years later. Right. So, I mean, Alex, see, I think this gets to uh, this has a direct relation to 2020, because I believe that what the president is really trying to do is what he did in his business businesses all his life is file these lawsuits. Right. Which wrap things up in the court. And just run out the clock. Run out the clock. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not new that a um, White House is fighting congressional subpoenas. No, That's no. Every, every White House yeah, forever yeah, has yeah. done that. What's different yeah. is you typically pretend like you're complying and you do you you do what you can, but you, you know, you, sl you slow things down, you drag your feet. What's, di what's different is to just 
say, oh, no, we're, we're just not going to uh, do that. Um, but right. I mean, the I, I think Trump is in re-election mode. He uh, is, is holding rallies. His campaign is very active. I think uh, he this morning he tweeted something like 50 times. I'm not it's not an exaggeration. Um, attacks on Joe Biden. He retweeted uh, attacks on Joe Biden. So he's very much thinking in the 2020 mindset. And I think you have to look at everything he does through the lens of his reelection and his political survival, uh, essentially. And uh, everything will will come back to that. And so he's willing to take extreme measures to to protect himself. Right. Um, and, and I guess um, it's sort. I guess it's full employment act for. The DC, DC attorneys. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's what's interesting about these cases is normally when we see these <coughs> subpoena fights, it's to agencies, and there's a big fight over the bounds of executive privilege, and this is an interbranch fight. Um, here, these are private entities. Um, normally, you don't see the executive branch getting tied up in a subpoena fight over subpoenas mm. to third parties outside the government. Um, so I think that's what's also different about this case is it's not about the, the bounds of, of Congress's power to subpoena the executive branch. It's This is a personal matter for the president. These are not DOJ lawyers litigating these cases. This is the pers- president's personal attorneys suing the House committees or these financial institutions to block the subpoenas. So I think that's what's also very different about this this mm. time around. Uh, and the first example of this clash between the executive and the legislative is the emergency declaration, right, on the border, I think it was the first one. At any rate, that's, that, right. that's also now With them taking the them to court, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, people have sued the Trump administration right. no. forever. Well, I mean, Congress, but yes. Congress taking the, the executive branch to court that's over right. their ability to declare an emergency declaration. Yes. And where's the law on that as you read it? It's anyone's guess. I think that the case is still very much in its early stage. It's, and it's not just about the emergency declaration. There's other reprogramming of funds. So this but, is but really the, about congressional personnel. Well, did you read the law? I mean, my understanding is that the president has to be a real emergency, right? Not sure. a made-up emergency. But it's, he has a lot of discretion when it comes to declaring that emergency. The statute is really doesn't even define what an emergency is. It leaves that term basically undefined. But isn't the issue that if it's something... With, with Congress has appropriated money for a specific purpose that Congress has that the president cannot then take that money and use it for something else. As a general principle, but there is this emergency declaration provision, and it is pretty broad, and so and it's relatively untested. Yeah, so, so we'll see. So now we're going to test it. And again, Alex, unlikely that it will be, be resolved by November 3rd, 2020. Uh, right. And it creates, which I think a lot of um, Republicans uh, flagged at the time, it create, potentially creates a precedent where a Democratic president could say, oh, oh uh, yeah. you, you've given you know, $100 million for new aircraft carriers um, or whatever so for defense, and we're, we're going to spend it. I don't know if these specific examples work, but we're going to spend it to, to fight climate change, which is a national security threat. So therefore, it's under the larger national security umbrella or you know whatever choose your choose your pick they're very clever lawyers who will go through and find the places where you could move money around and they could cite this as an example and then uh, have all the the clips of all the republicans on and Fox as you News point out, these it. are future democratic i mean there were republicans senators 
who expressed the fact that their fear was that a future Democratic president could use the same, follow that same precedent that Trump set by Donald Trump. That's right. Yeah, they, yeah, they, they, they were Republican senators and 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 uh, legal experts who who <coughs> raised these concerns, and and then Democrats openly said, okay, well, we'll declare an emergency on gun violence. We'll declare an emergency on climate change. We'll declare an emergency on you know a whole host of uh, or you can even do immigration, but but in a different direction. A uh, whole host of, of Democratic priorities, given that, uh, you know, it's unlikely Democrats are going to have a huge, uh, even if you have a Democratic president, whether they win the Senate or not, it'll be legislative legislation is going to be tough. So a lot of what the next Democratic president, if there is one, uh, is going to do is going to have to go through the executive branch. And anything you do to expand the power of the executive works both ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are uh, some Republicans who remember the fight over the deferred action for childhood arrivals and con- right. Republicans who adhere to conservative, traditional conservative legal principles and I think are a bit uncomfortable with what this administration is trying to do here and remembering that fight and how vehemently over, over, be, they oppose over, that expansion that, of executive power. By and, executive order, yeah. right. Uh, a couple of scandals in the news. Roger Stone was back in the courtroom yesterday. He was. Um, always good to see him. <laughs> He's always very friendly with reporters. Um, yeah, we like it was that. Pretty uneventful. He's his criminal case is moving along. They're exchanging evidence and discovery. The current fight is over whether he gets to see unredacted portions of the Mueller report, at least those that relate to his case. And a judge is going to rule on that in a couple weeks. So that's is what this an ongoing effort of the Robert Mueller team, or they've basically pulled out. So who's handling um, it's this the now? U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. has taken over the bulk of cases that are still pending from Robert Mueller's office right now. And this, we we assume, correct me if I'm wrong, that the parts relating to WikiLeaks where it said, you know, Trump hurt. There's there's one where uh, Rick Gates is in a car with, with Donald Trump and Donald Trump gets a call from Redacted and says there's more WikiLeaks coming soon. So we assume yeah. that that's... The, the parts that relate to Roger Stone. Right. Anything having to do with WikiLeaks, we assume, is related. I mean, it, it is related to Roger Stone's case. Anything to do with WikiLeaks, even if it's not Roger Stone, is related to Roger Stone's case. Um, so they're going to argue that he, A, whether he has any entitlement to the unredacted material, and B, how much of that unredacted material he should get. Okay. Uh, so Roger Stone, that case continues. And what's the latest with another scoundrel, Roy Moore? <laughs> in the news today, right? That's right. So Roy Moore has been eyeing another Senate bid in 2020. There was a recent poll that showed if he were to run, he would be the front runner in the Republican primary right now if he decided to do that. That's what we need, another Roy Moore candidacy in Alabama. It worked out so well last time. Right. Doug Jones would love it. Yeah. Donald yeah. Trump can go back to uh, what's Pensacola City, I think, or Right, right on the border. Yeah. Right, right on in, the border. In Florida. Florida but, Alabama but yes, border. Enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in the meantime, Roy Moore is keeping busy doing other things, including suing the comedian Sasha Baron Cohen for defamation <laughs> um, because Cohen tricked Roy Moore into sitting for an interview where Sasha Baron Cohen was pretending to be ex-Israeli intelligence and he was telling Moore that they had invented a wand, like the metal detector wands they used at the airport to detect sex offenders. <laughs> He waves it over Roy Moore, beeps. <laughs> Roy Moore, understandably, stands up and says the interview is over and leaves the room. So, do, do you think he thought 
in for a minute that this wand was real and he had just been exposed. As, if you watch the video, as soon as Sasha Baron Cohen starts talking about sex offenders, you see Roy Moore's whole body yep. language change. And it's I think a immediately video. he understands that something is off here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. Sasha Baron Cohen, every time he does this, it usually ends up in court and someone tries to argue they've been defrauded, defamed. Cohen usually wins. Um, but in the meantime, Roy Moore is pursuing this. He was in court this week for a hearing where he lost an effort to try and keep the case in D.C. They're going to move it to New York, which is part of an agreement he signed with the show, um, part of a contract. So it's not going great for him. He's also currently suing one of the women who accused him of sexual assault when he was campaigning initially. She is suing him for defamation. That litigation is still going. So if he is going to run... He's going to have to decide if he wants to somehow get out of these very messy legal entanglements that he has gotten himself into. Anybody who agrees to an interview with Sasha Baron Cohen yeah. <laughs> up front, right, deserves anything that it. happens as far as I'm concerned. Don't do it. Oh, man. Alex, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, Bill. NBC News, it's where you watch the first presidential debate. Don't Thank forget. Uh, follow Alex at NBCNews.com, and you can follow Zoe Tillman at BuzzFeedNews.com. Thanks for coming in, Zoe. Thanks Great for to see me. you. Have a great May Day, folks. We'll see you tomorrow. This is The Bill Press Show. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.